Welcome to a new wave of entrepreneurship. I'm Latifa Farah, Associate Creative Producer at Venture for Canada and the producer of a new wave of entrepreneurship. Venture for Canada is a national charity on a mission to foster the entrepreneurial skills and mindsets of young Canadians. Our vision is a Canada where young people can equitably realize their entrepreneurial potential to build the most prosperous place in the world. The focus of this podcast is to hear from changemakers and Canadian entrepreneurs and to learn about how they've developed their entrepreneurial mindset and skills. In season eight, we'll be chatting with CEOs, founders, and successful business leaders about their career journeys. In this episode, we're joined by Ronald Richardson, a corporate director and private investor with active roles and investment interests in the technology, energy, space, and non-for-profit sectors. As a private investor, Ronald manages an investment portfolio of over 40 companies and is a member of the Capital Angel Network, an advisor to Elspark, Shibu, and the Next36 program cohorts. Ronald sits down with Scott to discuss the importance of board governance. I am very excited to be interviewing Ronald Richardson on Venture for Canada's podcast, A New Wave of Entrepreneurship this morning. The focus of our conversation today is about corporate governance and boards. And one of the things we were chatting about in the the uh, pre-taping conversation is just the importance of corporate governance for society, be it from charities, from universities, for uh, large corporations. So Ronald, at a very high level, what is the role of a board of directors? Uh, The role of a board, it, it does depend on scale. So as a small company, if you own it yourself outright, you are effectively the, the controller and the shareholder. It's all you. But as soon as you start to introduce more than one stakeholder, generally the board starts to become more important. And as you scale up to uh, not-for-profits, charities, small private, large private, even large public companies, now you have hundreds or thousands of stakeholders. So in general, it's three, three big things. The number one role of the board is make sure the right CEO is in the seat, that they're motivated and they're aligned to the business. So succession is job number one. Even if you've just appointed a new CEO, you want to be thinking about what happens with the proverbial busts. The second one is trust. So the fundamental problem with a corporation is something that, that's coined the agency problem. And I can get into that, but uh, the third, I would say the role of the board is around support. So the board, sometimes it's perceived as this sort of evil you know, group of people that, that are out for bad. And, and really a board is on the same team. Everyone should be rowing in the same direction. And for a CEO, it's often lonely at the top. So as a CEO, a board can be there for you to sound out ideas. It, that can even extend to the senior leadership team. So again, big picture, CEO, the agency problem and trust, and really being a support role. And I can dive into the, the agency problem because it's, if, if you'd like. That would be great, Ronald. I'd love to learn a little bit more about the agency problem. Yeah, it's uh, a corporation is a person at law. And this to me was out of, it it didn't register. But what happened back in early days of of Britain, US, Canada, is they said, okay, let's, let's create this thing called a corporation, which can act as a person, not a natural person, that's like you and I, but a person in the sense of 
under the law, they can open a bank account, own property, take legal action. And that entity exists beyond any one person. So when you say I own my business, you don't technically, the business is its own person. You have certain rights to that business. So now the, as a business grows, the owners are not necessarily the operators. So the owners provide, they, they give license to certain people, they hire people to run the business. So if I'm a shareholder of, of Corporation X, how can I trust that it's being operated in a responsible, honest, effective way if I'm not in the room? And that's kind of the crux of the agency problem. So the shareholders, they appoint a board. They also appoint auditors. And those are people that, that are sitting around the organization. The board, the board hires the CEO. The board approves the budget and the board delegates authority to the management team to operate against the budget. So that, that in its core is why a board exists. It's there to act on behalf of the shareholders to make sure that the right person's in the seat, the CEO, that the operating plan makes sense and that things are being handled practically and, and accountably. And then big picture, what does the board do? Like the role day to day or month to month? Um, I love the, the characterization from ICD uh, and, and I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about that, but they talk about the three lines of sight, hindsight, oversight, foresight. So most people are familiar with hindsight and that's the idea that the board gets the financials, you know, whether it's quarterly or yearly, uh, receiving reports, that's, that's mundane work. And weaker boards tend to focus on hindsight almost exclusively because it's easy. The second site, oversight, that is more the governance label. So are there systems or controls in place to manage risk? Are we producing accurate financial statements? Those types of questions. And the third is arguably the most important and the most valuable, and that's foresight. So that ties into strategy and talent. So what is significantly different and important since our last meeting? Where are we going, right? What's our, what's our next step? And those types of conversations, I think for the CEO and the leadership team, especially if you have a board that is uh, informed on the industry, has some gray hair, uh, that's all very helpful. One of the paradigms I've increasingly heard of uh, in the corporate governance space is the difference between strategic boards and generative boards, and, or, and actually more specifically, strategic discussions and generative uh, discussions. So Ronald, for our listeners, can you describe what is a strategic conversation and what is a generative conversation? Generative is actually not a, a word I've heard, but I, I kind of get the crux of the question. I mean, like, so at the root of it, a board, any, any person that's connected to a company has to act honestly and in good faith with a view to the best interest of the corporation. So that's, that's kind of your job. When you're talking about discussions in a boardroom, um, a strategic discussion is one where, as I mentioned, you're really, you're really looking ahead. You're trying to, um, keep the business a going concern. That's a, that's an accounting term for this business can pay its bills and continue operating. And ultimately the, the idea of a, a, 
risk risk is sort of the what could interrupt our plans or what it, what uncertainty could arise that that could prevent us from achieving our objectives so the strategic discussion is very much aligned to the forward looking lens that you want to be applying as opposed to uh, discussions that are that are retroactive and to your point, it can be so much easier for boards of directors to look in the past. And I know this is something sometimes an evolution we've gone through at Venture for Canada is trying to get our board packages to not just be all, this is what we've done. This is what's happened in the last three months, but more around, okay, what does the future of the organization look like? How do we bring in speakers from other organizations to share their external uh, you know, perspectives of the, of the environment? How do we think about new ideas and generate new concepts? So one related question I have for you is how can boards ensure that they are collecting sufficient information from their external environment? That in essence, the board isn't sort of siloed uh, and uh, losing insight about how external circumstances are rapidly changing, which, which could uh, impact a business. So the question in a nutshell, Ronald, is how can boards ensure that they are taking into account changes in the external environment that may materially impact the, the organization that they govern? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So there's often a concept talked about, and that is the information gap. The idea that boards and directors are usually 80 to 90% reliant on management for the data they get. So it's very important also for boards to keep plugged in. So do the homework, stay consistently plugged in, um, I know some of the advice I, I tend to lean on is, is being part of everything from professional organizations, staying busy, staying in industry. So keep a pulse, uh, keep reading. And what you're trying to do as well is, is uh, take the 30,000 foot view. I mean, having been an operator myself, you know, in a, in a capacity where you're, you're, you're in the weeds running the business, sometimes it, you hardly get a chance to take a breath. And, Ideally, your board is out there um, in the community, in the network, uh, watching the landscape and, and trying to provide um, not necessarily specific direction, but more uh, questioning how the business's current strategy would fit into the changing landscape. So it's a question of just being, uh, being informed and being uh, engaged in, in the market that you're operating in. Shifting back a little bit to one of the three areas of focus of board of directors, and that's the relationship between the CEO and the board of directors, uh, of which there is arguably no other relationship that is more important in an organization. If that relationship's unhealthy, it's not a good sign for the whole org. If it's doing really well, then uh, probably the organization's doing relatively well if, if, if the governance is in a good place. So what advice do you have uh, for both CEOs as well as boards of directors on how to foster uh, an effective working relationship. Right. So the, uh, I guess a working relationship, let's, um, do, do you mind if we start with the, the CEO's relationship with the board of directors and then move from there into working relationship? Because I think that's often misunderstood. So in a, in a corporate world, everyone has a boss, even the CEO, and the CEO reports to the board. So 
the, the board, as I mentioned, is responsible for making sure the right CEO is in that seat. So the board ultimately controls the, the higher fire decisions around the CEO or succession. They are responsible for incentivizing or the compensation for the CEO. Uh, and ultimately the board has that accountability to shareholders. So with respect to the CEO and the board, the board itself as a whole gives direction to the CEO, not individual directors. And that is a distinction that's often overlooked. So it, it, it can be very damaging if a director steps outside of the board and starts uh, suggesting strategies or product direction or you know, interfering with the operations or, or worst case, you're out in the field, you're talking to employees and you start making suggestions. Um, that, 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 that jumping of the org chart can, can be very uh, disruptive to the operating management team. So when it, when it comes to effectiveness, um, there's, there's a lot of uh, layers to how to be effective, but, but we, can, we can jump into that. So should we talk uh, chairs or should we talk about um, like highly effective chairs or, or whatnot? Yeah, maybe, I think given the chair and the CEO relationship is particularly important, feel free to, to start with the chair. Yeah, so the board chair... Um, in some cases, if there's a controlling shareholder, uh, they are themselves the chair. Uh, but ideally, the board elects a chair amongst the directors. So often that could be someone that has the most experience in the industry or the longest tenure with the board. Uh, the, the role of the chair is really to pull together talent, tone, and time. So those, those three pieces, uh, talent around the boardroom table, I mean, obviously the CEO is one of those people, but there is uh, an exercise when you're recruiting a board, uh, you may have heard the term skills matrix, right? It relates to nomination and, and who do you want to succeed current directors and what do you want your board to be? Who's in the room? And often a board of company A will look very different than company B because of where you're going, the market you're in, what you need around the table to truly help and be strategic. So that's the talent piece. Um, from a tone perspective, I love the term tone at the top. So one of the key roles of not only leadership, but I would say it starts at the board level as well, is, is setting the tone for the, the organization. So if, if things are going to happen ethically and above board, that, that has to start right at the top. Uh, board chair, you know, is, is really the, 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 the starting point for that. So a great board chair will be a listen first type person, uh, driving meaningful discussion. They'll be there to own and understand the culture. Um, and the third piece of that uh, time. So an effective board and an effective chair are really there to manage the time. So set the agenda for a board meeting, uh, working with the CEO and the other board members to, to figure out what should be on the slate for our discussions in these upcoming, in an upcoming meeting, what's most critical to the business. And, you know, going back to this idea of simply reviewing past financial statements, that's, 
that's easy and passe. Instead, what are the challenges ahead of us and how are we going to drive a, drive a meaningful discussion and make the right decisions given the landscape ahead? What are some of the best practices that you recommend on how boards of directors can uh, proactively uh, work with the CEO to manage the risks that their organizations are facing? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I mentioned continue as a going concern and, and the idea that risk is really the effect of uncertainty on a, objectives. And that, that line comes from ISO 31000. Uh, I, I also love the quote, never cross a river that is four feet deep on average. So risk management is really concerned with the extremes or the tails of a probability distribution, not their averages. Uh, there's also one prevention is orders of magnitude cheaper than the cure, right? An ounce of prevention worth a pound of cure. And uh, last one on this is if you must panic, it pays to panic early. So, I mean, that, that kind of underpins risk in general. I think something that's also a misconception, which I, I take to heart is it's not the board or the leader or the senior leadership team that manage risk, employees do. Uh, there, I know there's a study by uh, Sydney Yoshida, which was called the iceberg of ignorance. And he concluded that uh, 96% of problems are not known to senior management. You know, there's all these cases about like, how did the company not know that this was a, going to be a problem or could be a problem? So practically, what this means is having a process, right? We we haven't really got into sort of oversight and detail, but having processes that bubble risk up to visibility at the board level and that you have the right systems and tools and processes in place to deal with them. So that often looks like a risk matrix. It's usually refreshed annually. Um, the board overall owns risk management, but sometimes it's spread out. So you mentioned being on committees, I mean, Often the governance committee might own an enterprise-wide risk framework, make sure it's up to date. Uh, the audit committee usually gets involved overseeing financial matters and risk there. Uh, there's also, if you have an HRCC, like human resources and comp committee, that's often comp related and risk with, with HR. So there's all that side of it. And then depending on the level of sophistication, risk can take the form of uh, sort of action plans. So there's ERPs, DRPs, like emergency response plan or disaster recovery plan. So if you perceive something to be real and you have the raw risk, but you have these tools or, or systems or mitigation in place, now you have a residual risk. Well, even if that happens, right, there's an event or, I mean, we, we just, we're getting through a pandemic. I, I like to say got through, but <laughs> it's still around. Like that was a paradigm shift for a lot of companies. It was tectonic. So who had pandemic on their risk matrix and who was prepared or was it one of these scrambling to catch up? So in some industries, the, the risks are pretty easy to spot. Uh, but the important part is having a plan in place so that as those scenarios start to show signs of being real, that you're not figuring it out live, that you're, you've got a plan in place that you have either practice in some scenarios or you have uh, thought through 
at least the, the bones of, of what you're going to do to recover. We recently interviewed Stephen uh, Pelos, the former governor of the Bank of Canada on this podcast, and that episode will be, be coming out as well. And that was one of the things he was talking about is even if you're a central banker, for instance, and you're trying to anticipate what's going to happen in the economy, okay, well, there's a chance of recession, but, and maybe you say there's a 30% chance, but then there's also a, a good chance that there isn't a recession, that this is the, the lowest point. And at the end of the day, no one has a crystal ball. How do you, uh, you, you know, you can try to put a percentage on it, but it's also recognizing that there are, but as you look to the future, there are, there are an endless number of variables. There's an endless number of potential directions. And uh, it's important to, uh, to, to plan in essence for the worst case scenario, but also to plan a little bit of what happens if there's the best case uh, scenario. One of the things he talked about is the importance of having for businesses to have a chief risk officer but also to have like a chief opportunities officer. And I think this kind of relates to the core of, of our conversation a little bit around this risk is it's, uh, you know, it's looking, it's, it's about mitigating risk and it's about looking to, to the past, but it's also about what are all the opportunities that these risks ca can, can unlock. So my question for you, Ronald, is how can, what, how, what can be the interplay between risk management and opportunity identification? It's a great question. I love the idea of uh, VP risk, right? As opposed to VP risk management. Like the, the idea is that risk risk gets owned and, and risk is uncertainty in the future. But you're right. There is risk is obviously the focus on the downside. But there, when a, when a paradigm shift or a, they refer to it as black swan event or a major thing happens, um, in many cases that can present opportunities. So we often refer to it, you know, in the, in the boardroom as having dry powder. So if you're a business that's able to acquire or, you know, you have assets to move, sometimes being patient and waiting for these changes in the landscape puts you in a position to make very, very good uh, strategic moves at a time when others might be flailing. So having dry powder is, uh, is, is helpful. And there's a scenario planning exercise that, that I've, I've seen done and participated in that, that basically looks at, you know, really out, outlandish potential futures, but what would have to be true to believe that that's happening? So you start working backwards from an outlandish future scenario, like the whole world is shut down in a, in a full lockdown because of a pandemic. And then you work backwards to see what would be the, the early warning signs that that is starting to happen. So here we are in a high interest rate environment. Uh, you know, we're certain, seeing certain economic indicators. Uh, if you are looking at it from an opportunity lens, you might already be two steps ahead. If you've thought through this, this is where the board discussing what members know about economies, the market, the way markets react to certain situations, you can be one or two steps ahead of the rest of the market and be very opportunistic at times of change. I mean, that is where really growth comes from. It's, it's when, when, when things are moving and changing. So you're right, risk is, risk is the downside, but change is paired with upside. 
Yeah, it's a, an important thing to consider that that interplay between the two. It's often at times of the greatest uncertainty and change where there's also the most opportunities uh, at the same time because things are being fundamentally reordered and there's opportunity to build things anew. Something else that I'm intrigued about it, and I've been thinking about this uh, phrase from uh, Tony Robbins, even though I'm not necessarily a big Tony Robbins fan, and he once said that uh, the quality of the, your life is the quality of your questions. And I think about this with a board and I often find some of the board directors that can add the most value are the ones who really think through, okay, this is the one or two or three questions I'm going to ask in a specific uh, uh, meeting. And in researching this interview, there's, if you Google questions board should ask management, there's a, a hundred thousand uh, articles and a hundred thousand different kinds of questions. And one of my questions for you, Ronald, is what are some of the critical questions that you think that boards should be asking uh, management as part of their board governance responsibilities? Yeah, often getting the question right is the most important thing. The answers, the right answers will follow, but you got to get the question right. So I 100% I agree. So I would say that First and foremost, I love uh, Peter Drucker's quote, culture eats strategy for breakfast. So it doesn't matter how detailed or precise your strategy is. If you have a high functioning team, you're going to be on top. So that comes, I, I mentioned tone at the top. So first question, do we have the right tone at the top? Is our leader, like as a board, we have a role, but really it's senior leadership team and CEO are we setting the right tone for the organization, right? That, that relates to mission, vision, values. And are they practiced and are they walking, walking the walk, so to speak? As far as other questions, um, I, I love the question, uh, what keeps you up at night? So for, for either the CEO or certain departmental leaders in an organization, really flushing out today or, or in the near future, what is, what's making them sweat? Um, that's always a good one and that's pretty general. Uh, with respect to the board's oversight role, uh, often you'll meet with your auditors in camera, which means without management present. And the question I usually reserve for that is, you, you're asking the auditors as a director, are there any questions you expected to hear from us but didn't? And what that usually unlocks is they'll say, well, actually, and they might share some information about the relationship or something they spotted, or, you know, there might've been a delay or gap, you know, in your, that's sort of, you'll, you'll get quite quickly a sense of comfort or you'll get your, you know, spidey sense up as to whether or not uh, you should be double clicking on anything. Um, I think if you look through a, a standard board agenda, uh, there's inherent questions all, all through that. Uh, you know, we don't have to get into them, but some of the some of the ones I'll just pull off the top are, you know, I always like to ask, were there any significant departures from the plan and budget? Like where where are we significantly off what we thought we were going to do and why? That's always a good thing to understand. Um, Related to risks, which we just chatted about, I think there's always a connection. Do we have an appropriate control culture, right? There's, there's something to be said for 
for having controls, but are we, are we walking the walk as, as I mentioned? Those are great questions. And I particularly like that one is, are there any questions that you were anticipating that I asked that I didn't ask? I expected to hear from us, but didn't, yeah, or for me. <laughs> oh, it's a good one. And, and you know what, you'd, you'd be surprised. Uh, like the in-camera idea is that you kind of pull people out of the room that might be conflicted or might well, just their presence might impact some other person's uh, freedom or, or comfort in saying, in, in presenting transparently, right? So uh, in camera, it's a Latin term, but basically it's usually at a board meeting, uh, best, best uh, practice is to actually hold an in-camera with directors alone in advance of the meeting, like at the start. You know, you've reviewed material, you sit down and you say, okay, looking around the table at people who are charged with governance only, not operations, so management's out of the room. Guys, what do we, or, you know, I say that in the general neutral sense, but what do we think, what do we think about what we've just read, you know, going into this meeting, are there any areas that we want to uh, focus on? That's a really helpful way to align and, and have sort of a pre-discussion and then often there's an in-camera at the end of the meeting with the CEO. So management steps out, the CEO's still at the table, and you can have a more focused discussion on HR or certain um, sensitive topics that, that might not be appropriate to share with others in the room. And then usually you finish the meeting with an in-camera, just the directors, the independent directors who are not part of management. And again, that's a point where any any final thoughts from directors, the chair can take back to the CEO and say, hey, by the way, without attribution, of course, you're not, you're not letting the CEO know who thought what, but you say the board has a concern about X or the board has a re recommendation Y, whatever it is. Um, so those are, those are uh, not necessarily questions, but they're structures in governance that allow the right questions to come out. And the right questions are so critical for, uh, I think, any board as it governs the whole conversation, ultimately what the focus of a meeting is going to be. To wrap things up, uh, Ronald, at, at a high level, what are the attributes of a high-functioning board and what are the attributes of a low-functioning board? Great. So high-functioning board, it's kind of like a marriage. So <laughs> a high-functioning board is, is going to look uh, like, like a performing team. I mean, uh, largely running on time, members show up informed, uh, people are independent, right? They demonstrate independence. Uh, they would have bring their experience to the table. I, I mentioned integrity already. Um, a great board, you know, they'll have substance and style, uh, depth, demeanor, you know, gravitas, grace, those are all words that come to mind. Uh, often, obviously respectful and uh, psychological safety is a concept. I know Google introduced it, uh, but in general, it's that there is no, uh, that, that any thought is respected and, and can be shared. So that allows for transparent, open discussion and board members feel that uh, their concerns or their, their thoughts are, are welcomed. And I think that that's essential to good governance. It's essential to a, a high functioning board. You mentioned dysfunctional. 
So I, I love the line, the fish usually rots from the head. And I mentioned marriage. So like a dysfunctional board resembles a failing marriage. So I was part of a, uh, a board of a, of a startup and it was three founders that were all uh, together. And it actually came from the merger, a cashless merger of two prior entities, uh, you know, two companies, two founders on one side, one on the other. In that case, this was just a textbook example of a highly dysfunctional like management team, but also board because they were on the board as well. There was trust issues, power struggle. Uh, one of the one of the uh, founders who was not in the CEO position was trying to constantly usurp the CEO. There was contempt. There was jealousy, stonewalling in meetings, like information not being shared. There was back channel conversations and and what I would call jumping. So, you know, member of the management team was talking to board members to try to sort of even gaslighting. Like it, it can get very very ugly. Um, that's worst case. Uh, there are dysfunctional boards which, uh, in ICD, we talk about a controlling CEO. So often like a, an owner, majority owner, control, uh, share, controlling shareholder can lead to a situation which may or may not be dysfunctional, meaning the board is there as a, on a perfunctory basis. They're not actually there with full autonomy or being able to exercise or, or demand what a board should be entitled to. Uh, so that that kind of touches on it. Um, like at, at law, a dysfunctional board is only, uh, and this, this comes a little bit out of Delaware case law, but it applies to Canada too. Like a board does not get in trouble for failing to predict the future. So business outcomes are not the responsibility of the board, but rather to not have the right systems or processes or failing to attempt to uh, collect the information from those systems and actually understand them. So if, you, if you're not implementing any reporting or information systems, or if you've implemented them, but consciously fail to monitor or oversee them, that is where you've failed in a, in a capacity as a director. So that's another type of dysfunctional board that uh, that can happen. And as I think we have all learned over the last uh, couple of decades is corporate governance is so critical for the success of all uh, institutions from the recent uh, Hockey Canada uh, scandals that have happened this year to the collapse of Enron to uh, Elizabeth Holmes, who even though she had some of the most uh, well-known people in the United States on her board of directors. There was still massive uh, amounts of, of fraud and the list goes on. It can happen in any institution, be it a religious institution to a, uh, a large corporation to a, uh, you know, a private school. Uh, corporate governance failures happen all the time. And to our listeners who are largely young Canadians that are beginning to, to start their careers, as you advance, I think one of the things that's so critical is to think about developing corporate governance skills. And how can you do that even in your 20s uh, and further it in your 30s and 40s? And to start young, recognizing that if you're going to be in a leadership role, uh, and even if you're not going to be a director later on, having some knowledge of what is good governance will help you in so many different roles uh, in your careers. And I think 
Ronald shared a, a ton of uh, really wise insights and actionable uh, takeaways uh, for listeners uh, to think about uh, as uh, as you think about uh, the future of, uh, of of developing corporate governance uh, skills. Uh, Ronald, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was a true pleasure speaking with you. Likewise, the pleasure is all mine. Thanks, Scott. That's it for this week's episode of A New Wave of Entrepreneurship. Stay connected with us via our socials and our email list. Subscribe to us in your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss our next episode. If you have feedback on today's episode, tweet us at Venture for Canada, that is Venture for Canada, or email us at podcast at ventureforcanada.ca. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. I'm Latifa Farah, and that was Scott Sturrett. Until next time, stay safe, stay motivated, and stay grateful.